Johnny Erickson Tato once said, believers are never told to become one. We already are one and are expected to act like it. Of course, we don't always act like it, do we? Because we're all different, and it's hard sometimes to accept that we can actually be one with people who are so much different than us, in large part, I think, because we don't understand always those differences, right? And yet, as I've said often, although human culture constantly changes, human nature never changes, not without Christ. And so across continents and cultures and centuries of time, what ails the human soul never changes, Right? The, the truth is, if, if everyone knew everyone else's problems, think about that for a minute. If we all knew each other's hang-ups and fears and struggles and failures, and still knowing all of that, we made the decision to love one another anyway. Right? Meaning, you're going to love other people no matter how messed up they are, and all those other people are going to love you back no matter how messed up you are. First of all, I think we would all probably understand grace, what God has actually done for us in a much deeper way than many of us do now. Secondly, we would all probably be a lot more humble toward one another than I think most people are today. And thirdly, we would all probably be much closer to one another than we are even now because the strongest and healthiest relationships are always between believers who understand the grace that has been afforded them first, which again is very humbling. When you understand that Jesus loved you the most when you were at your worst, it replaces skepticism toward other people with gratitude. Right? When we can look past our differences and realize that our needs are the same. Right? Without Christ, we're all wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, according to Jesus in Revelation 3.17. But with Christ, we become one. One body. One family. One people. One church. Which is why people from so many different cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities and worldviews and perspectives are able to worship the same God together. Right? To form a united body. Despite our differences. And affirm one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's what makes the church so strong because it's made up of people from all over the world with all of our differences and unique talents and gifts and strengths all coming together. Right? It's, that's how it's supposed to be because we're better together. In fact, that's how it was meant to be in the church from the beginning, which we know because that's what Jesus did for us, right? Knowing all of our sin and all of our struggles and all of our failures. He chose to love us anyway. But look, the only way we can do that for each other is by putting each other before ourselves. And yet that isn't our nature, is it? I mean, as human beings, if you think about it, we're born focused on ourselves, right? Every time a baby cries, it's saying, I want something. Me, 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 it's all about me. We enter this world thinking about what we want more than what others want. And as we grow, we intuitively take care of ourselves first because that's what comes naturally to us. And so in order for that to change our nature, what comes naturally to us has to change as well. 
right? Which will never happen on its own. And so that's where Jesus comes in because when you become a follower of Christ, when he does his work of salvation and redemption in your life, you're given a new nature. The old man dies and the new man comes alive. The apostle Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And of course, uh, that doesn't mean we no longer have to choose to put others first every day. It's still a choice we have to continue to make because we haven't yet been perfected, of course. So we still have to deny ourselves daily, as Jesus points out in Luke 9.23. We have to die to our old nature every day and choose to put others first in our lives. When you're in Christ... You have the ability to do that because you're a new creation, right? With a new nature, which allows you, among other things, to love in ways you never could before. And yet it's still a choice. It's a choice to love others more than you love yourself. It's still a choice. And the only way you'll ever do that is by being fixated on the source of that love, Jesus Christ. Because when he's the first priority in your life, then putting others before yourself actually becomes quite natural, which also means if you're not loving others more than you love yourself, well, then Jesus is not the first priority in your life. You can declare your allegiance to him, your commitment to him, your faith in him all you want to, but if you're not putting others in your life before yourself, then Jesus is not the most important person in your life. And so when I... Uh, find myself, for instance, not putting someone else first in my own life. The wrong question for me to ask myself is, what, what is it about that person that's making me not treat them the way I should? Right? That's the wrong question to ask, although I think that's typically the way we approach the differences we have with other people, but that is, in fact, the wrong question to ask. The right question is, why am I not putting Jesus Christ first in my own life right now? Because if I was, then I would actually be preferring that person over myself, no matter how different than me they may be. By the way, there's a common misconception in our culture today that says you cannot love others if you don't love yourself first. It's actually antithetical to everything that Jesus taught. Okay, you, you don't have to hate yourself but if loving someone different than you necessitates you denying your own natural feelings about them because of those differences, then that's exactly what you must do. Because you cannot truly love others if you don't first love Jesus more than anything or anyone else, including, and most of all, yourself. And look, this is the key. This is the linchpin that holds the family of God together. It's our fidelity to and unity in Christ that binds us together, differences and all. We're not just talking about tolerating other Christians who are different than you, by the way. No, we're talking about choosing to worship with and value other people and their differences because whether you like it or not or want to admit it or not, we're better together. We're better together, differences and all. As Paul points out in the very beginning of his letter to the Romans, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Romans 1, 4, and 5. Right? Let's, so let's pick the letter back up where we left off last time and see what Paul has to teach us about learning to worship with and value one another. 
right? Differences and all. Romans chapter 14, we'll begin with the first 12 verses. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Uh, look, the, the people who converted to Christianity in the first century brought all of their previous religious experiences and traditions and perspectives with them. Some of them had decades of living in Judaism before coming to Christ. Others were steeped in pagan religions when they became Christians. And through those past religious experiences, they acquired deeply rooted religious habits and attitudes. And so from a religious perspective, what they practiced and what they avoided right, was different from group to group, depending on their background, from what they grew up in. And yet when they became Christians, they didn't necessarily drop all of those habits and attitudes right away. And so, for instance, there were Gentiles coming out of pagan religions that forbade any kind of self-indulgence that they viewed as worldly. And so they were very conservative pagan religions, some of them. So they turned away from all kinds of things that most people saw as normal behavior, and instead, these Gentile Christians were living ascetic lives, lives of extreme self-denial, which often included giving up the eating of meat altogether. Seneca was one famous example of this, but there were also entire Gentile groups like the Orphics and the Pythagoreans who were vegetarian, okay? And for some, drinking wine was an issue, while for others, it was not a problem. Abstaining from drinking wine actually was not known you know, not drinking wine was generally not known among the Jews, except for the Nazarites and priests when they engaged in ministry. And yet it was a common practice to avoid drinking wine among uh, many of the Gentile pagan religions. And at the same time, there were Gentile Christians in Corinth who with a clear conscience ate meat that had been offered to idols because they believed that idols didn't mean anything anymore now that they had the Spirit of Christ in them. Actually, Paul says their faith was strong. While others, those Paul describes as having a weak conscience, couldn't bear the thought of eating meat that had been offered to idols. It's all of that's discussed in 1 Corinthians 8. And bear in mind, Paul was writing this letter to the Roman Christians, this letter we're reading, while he was in Corinth. So although the situation wasn't exactly the same in Rome and Corinth, these kinds of issues were not limited to one local church nor are they limited to this time frame. And then you had Jews who were coming to Christ 
who were bent on keeping the law of Moses, the old covenant law, including the keeping of the Sabbath, as Paul mentions here. They loved Jesus and at the same time had no intentions of dropping their Mosaic religious practices. The, the point of all this being the church was made up of all kinds of different people, even in the first century, from all different kinds of backgrounds. They were all over the map in terms of what they saw as acceptable or unacceptable behavior. You understand, nothing has changed in that regard. Throughout the centuries of the Christian church, there have always been people like this, and there still are today, people, uh, look, who for reasons good or bad have seen certain actions as things they must do or other things that they must not do, while at the same time there are others who feel no compulsion about those same things either way. According to Paul, their faith has made them strong. Right? And by the way, when Paul talks about weak uh, faith in this passage, he's not referring to people who, who trust Christ less. No, he's saying there are Christians who don't have, uh, yet have the faith to sustain them through certain situations or even certain types of conduct. And, and it's also important to note here, by the way, uh, Paul is not talking about exclusively sinful conduct here either. Okay, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. No, Paul's saying there is behavior including some religious behavior that in and of itself isn't good or bad. It isn't expressly righteous or expressly sinful on its own. Unless your conscience doesn't allow it, in that case it is sinful for you and you should abstain from it. According to Paul, it's a matter of conscience. And so each one of us must judge for himself what is right for you in those cases because the strong were Ridiculing, They were mocking the weak for their delicate consciences while the weak were passing judgment on the strong who felt the liberty to eat and drink as they pleased and who celebrated every day as equally holy to the Lord, not holding one day up as a special Sabbath day. And, and listen, for Paul, both views are permissible. Don't, don't come at me with this later. Okay, Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just reading to you what Paul says. Right? He's not taking sides here, by the way. No, he's saying, listen, there's a much bigger issue at stake within the church. Right? It's unity. It's far more important than, than these issues. So whether you observe a particular day is more special than another, or eat all foods, or abstain from some foods, what matters is that in all that we do, we honor the Lord and give thanks to Him in all of it, together as a unified body of believers. Every day. Because, and here's the real issue according to Paul, because your life is not your own. You belong to the Lord, who alone is your judge. In other words, we bow to God alone, not to human tradition or religious behavior. And then to sum it all up, Paul quotes Isaiah 45, 23 from the Septuagint, actually the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. He says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. In other words, no matter where you come down on these behaviors, we're better when we learn to worship together. Differences and all. Because at the end of the day, all Christians, regardless of our differences, will worship the same God together for all of eternity. So let's get on with it now. Even though we don't agree on everything. Listen, this is a long quote, but I'm going to read it because it's worth reading. This is Bible scholar Leon Morris. He says, the church was never meant to be a cozy club of like-minded people of one race or social position or intellectual caliber. 
Christians are not clones, identical in all respects. One of the difficulties the church has always faced is that included in its membership are the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, those from every stratum of society, the old and the young, adults and children, the conservatives and the radicals. People from a great number of nations are Christians and people of every temperament. This is a wonderful thing about the church and most of us have thrilled at some time at the contemplation of the rich variety in our brothers and sisters in Christ. But this very variety puts strains on us all. How are we to coexist within one church? Other groupings in the societies we know are more limited in their membership. This takes away from the richness they might otherwise know, but it makes it easier for them to get along with one another. They're bound to be tensions in the Christian society, and this part of Romans shows that those tensions have been there from the first. It is easier to put our trust in Christ for salvation than to solve the hard problems that confront us when we try to live out the implications of our faith in a society that is not Christian. Paul gives us advice as to how we're to live with others who love the Lord, but who do not see what we're doing as the ideal way of living out the Christian faith. Look, even though we may never iron out all of our differences this side of heaven, we're better when we learn to worship Christ together. We're better when we learn to worship Christ together, not in ever-shrinking, cloistered groups of people until all that's left are those who are exactly like us in every possible way. Now, that kind of thinking will ultimately land you worshiping by yourself because no one else is righteous enough for you to worship with. Happens all the time, by the way. It happens all the time. People leave the local church to worship with a smaller group of more like-minded believers, and I have had many friends over the years who have done this over and over again until they end up doing Bible studies with their own family on Sundays and no one else. Because there are always differences. There are always disagreements. We never see eye to eye completely on everything, and there are people who can't handle that. They refuse to tolerate other believers who don't agree with them, and ultimately they end up worshiping alone. Well, have you ever thought about the fact that heaven is full of people who are very different? Okay, when you go to heaven, you don't sprout wings and float around on the crowds, uh, clouds in a, a diaper and a harp with everyone else. No. We were created in the image of God. And he created us with all of our differences as a representation of him in this world. We're supposed to be different. Which means whether you like it or not, if you're a Christian, you are going to spend eternity worshiping Jesus with billions of people who are nothing like you. Might as well get used to it now. Because the truth is, when we gather here on earth with people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, differences and all, and worship together, we are worshiping him on earth as it is in heaven. That's the way it's supposed to be, and that's the way it's going to be when we all get there together. Look, even when we don't feel like it, even when we know the sins of the person standing next to us, even when the weight of our circumstances is more than we can bear, we're called to worship him with our brothers and sisters in Christ, not because of how we feel, but because of who he is. The truth is we, we often associate our worship with our mood at any given moment. So we worship and give thanks when something great happens. We worship and give thanks when life is going our way. We worship and give thanks when it feels right. But what about when nothing feels right? 
Do you worship him then? What about when your life seems like it's falling apart? Do you worship him then? What about when you're suffering? Do you worship him then? Or when you feel betrayed by those closest to you, do you worship him then? Because that's what Jesus did. And he did it with others, not because of his rosy circumstances or their undying loyalty, but because he loved the Father and wanted to please him even in the midst of his own suffering and betrayal. Okay, look, we worship because it pleases God. Whether or not it pleases us is irrelevant. You hear me? We worship because it pleases God. Whether or not it pleases us is irrelevant. Yet there's something truly extraordinary about worshiping God together with other believers. Psalm 22 prophetically describes the crucifixion. In fact, Jesus quotes that psalm while hanging on the cross. We're going to be talking about that soon as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday together. Yet right in the midst of the worst suffering imaginable. Verse 3 of that psalm says, You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And when you read that in the ancient Hebrew, the word enthroned, it's the Hebrew word yashab, it means to inhabit or to dwell in. In other words, when God's people worship him together, even in the midst of our deepest suffering, God is especially present because he inhabits our corporate worship. He dwells in our worship. That's not just singing, by the way. It's every part of our life that we offer to God in a way that brings glory to him. The Apostle Paul said it this way a couple of chapters ago. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual service of worship. When he says present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he's not just talking about our physical bodies. No, he's talking about, if you read it in the original language, he's talking about our entire being, every part of who we are and how we live. And so much like Holy Communion, there's something uniquely effectual when God's people gather together for the express purpose of worshiping him. And in point of fact, I believe that is what strengthened Jesus after the Passover meal to be able to carry on with what he knew he was called to do because as they sang hymns to the Father together, he inhabited their praises. This is why it's so profoundly important that we never lose sight of why it is we gather on Sunday mornings. It's not to hear some good music. It's not to hear some good preaching. It's not to help out with the church with some money in the offering. It's not to do our good deed for the week by serving in the ministry. No, we gather to worship. We sing together to worship. We study together to worship. We fellowship together to worship. We give together to worship. We serve together to worship. And in the midst of that corporate worship, the presence and power of God dwells among us. This is what Paul says matters more than our differences when we commune with Christ and worship him together. Because it is then that we're infused with the power of his presence in ways that are otherwise unattainable. You see, me and Jesus simply isn't all there is. Just think about what happened when Paul and Silas decided to worship God together. While they're chained up in prison, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Acts 16, 25 and 26. There's so much power 
in our worship when we worship together. And so listen, if you're in the midst of some truly difficult circumstances today and you need the power of God to work in those circumstances, I have the answer for you. Worship him. If there's a relationship in your life that's falling apart right now and it's only the power of God that can save it, your answer is to worship him. If you need strength to get through an impossible obstacle in your life, strength that can only come from God, listen, the answer is to worship him. That's exactly what Jesus did in his darkest hour, and he did it with others, because that is where the power of God's presence resides, not in perfect agreement with one another on all points of religion, or habits, or attitudes, or even conduct. No, it's in our worship together, differences and all. Martin Luther once said at home, in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. Let's finish the story for today, verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So Paul's just hammering home the argument here. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now, it's really important we understand that Paul's not dealing with any and every single behavior under the sun. He's dealing with some specific things he's already talked about because according to the same Paul, there is behavior that is expressly sinful all the time for anyone, right? Not only that, but such sinful behavior, Paul says, is to be judged within the church, which he discusses at length in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, where after listing several behaviors that are sin all the time, he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, outside purge the evil person from among you, verses 12 and 13. So again, the, the subject matter that Paul is specifically addressing, addressing here in our letter in Romans is behavior that is not sinful in and of itself. The behavior that he just discussed in the first half of the chapter, because it's far more important Paul says that we value people over behavior. It's much more important that we value people over behavior, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is a plea from Paul for Christians to learn 
to differentiate the important from the unimportant and act with consideration for others, whichever side of the aisle you end up on. So don't ruin the work that God is doing in someone else's life for the sake of food or drink. It's not worth it. Whatever freedom you may feel in those areas of life, it's not worth wrecking someone else's faith over. So be aware of what you're doing and who you're doing it with, lest you cause your brother or sister to stumble. And again, he's not saying surrender your convictions. No, he says keep your faith in that between you and God. He's saying hold your consideration for one another in higher regard than you do individual behaviors because we're better when we learn to value one another. Listen, even when you're not feeling it, okay? The value that is assigned to us as members of the family of God is based on who we are in Christ, not on how well we perform for one another, right? Or even how we're treated by one another. No, our value as brothers and sisters in Christ is based on who we are in Him, period. Yet it's fairly common in our culture today, even our church culture, to find believers who assign value to other believers based on how they feel about them or based on how they're treated by them. So if someone has different ideals than us about family or politics or social issues or maybe even their worldview is different or maybe they don't treat us as we'd like for them to, we may not value them as a brother and sister or sister in Christ the same way we would someone whose ideals line up more closely with our own or someone who simply treats us better. By the way, when I talk about different ideals among us, I'm not talking about those who come in and peddle false doctrines in the church. Jesus and the scriptures are very clear about dealing decisively with false teachers. No, I'm talking about people we disagree with on issues that are not gospel issues. The kinds of issues that Paul's laying out here in the first part of the letter, right? It's okay to disagree uh, about tax policies, right? Or political issues and, and how the government should be run and what kind of yogurt you eat and the type of fertilizer you put on your garden. I mean, it just goes on and on. People have opinions about everything and that's fine. The truth is there's nothing wrong with having spirited, even vigorous debate about all kinds of things. I went to seminary in Europe. Many of the European Christians see things very differently than we do. We had, some, we had some really interesting, spirited debates while I was there. It's wonderful. But at the end of the day, don't allow those disagreements to affect the degree of value you assign to that brother or sister in Christ in your own heart. Because Jesus shed the same blood for them as he did for you which means our value as members of the same family, the family of God, our value is not defined by how we feel about each other. I'm sorry, it's not. Our value is defined by who we are in Christ. And so we should be affirming one another, even if we don't agree with each other's opinions about certain things. We should be expressing our love and care and concern for one another based on the fact that we're brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters in the same family, regardless of how much we agree or disagree with each other on any number of issues. So yes, uh, disagree, sure, debate, discuss all of these important things that affect all of our lives as citizens of the same country and members of the same body, the same church. They're 
certainly are different paths politically and socially and fiscally and so on that our country can take. There are different kinds of behaviors that we can engage in as Christians, and I personally believe some are better than others, right? And there are those who disagree with me, without a doubt. And having those discussions uh, is good, it's healthy. In fact, it's how we grow and mature and change, but please don't allow those disagreements to overshadow the fact that we are citizens of the same kingdom first. We're members of the same family first. We are the people of God, differences and all. And what sets us apart, what makes us unique, what gets us noticed by the world around us is not our political prowess or our positions on social issues or a culturally conservative worldview or even the fact that we eat or drink certain things or abstain from certain things. No, what sets us apart is our love for one another, our unity in Jesus Christ, and our common commitment to affirm each other in that same spirit of love and unity that, listen, can only be found as a member of his family. Which again, it's why Jesus said, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another, John 13, 35, which we talked about last week. Okay, unity among the body is second to none in importance. But there will never be unity among believers who don't value each other first, differences and all. A.W. Tozer once wrote, Unity is necessary to the outpouring of the Spirit of God. If you have 120 volts of electricity coming into your house, but you have broken wiring, you may turn on the switch, but nothing works. No lights come on, the stove doesn't warm, the radio doesn't turn on. Why? Because you have broken wiring. The power is ready to do its work, but where there's broken wiring, there is no power. Unity is necessary among the children of God if we're going to know the flow of power to see God do his wonders. Some things are more important than the petty issues we disagree on. Listen, at the end of the day, it all comes back to loving others more than we love ourselves. And loving others more than we love ourselves means being fixated on the source of that love, Jesus Christ, because when he is the first priority in your life, than putting others before yourself, even your preferences. That comes naturally. And so again, if you're not loving others more than you love yourself, then Jesus Christ is not the first priority in your life. Which leads us to a question that we must answer as members of the body of Christ. If we're not loving others more than we love ourselves, the question is, why am I not putting Jesus Christ first in my life right now? It's the most important question when it comes to loving others because you won't love and value others or choose to worship with them if you don't love Jesus more than you despise your differences with them. You hear me? If you don't love Jesus more than you despise the differences you have with other Christians, you'll never value them the way we're supposed to or choose to worship with them. Your love for him has to come first. It's the backbone of the church. It's the linchpin that holds us together. It's what binds us together in unity. And that matters far more than us agreeing on everything. Because we're stronger when we're together. We are more effective when we're together. In fact, we reflect Christ more powerfully when we're together. At the end of the day, 
We're just better when we're together. Differences and all. Let's pray.